0: The passage today comes from Jonah 1, 1 through 16. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to tarnish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon it, the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The mariner, mariner, mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to them, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the, the God will give us a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to them, What is this that you have done? for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is God's word for us today.
1: Thank you, Ellie. Uh, would you pray with me? Father God, we want to come to you now and ask that you would quiet our hearts, that you would prepare us to hear from this passage what you would have us to hear. God, I, I'm struck every time I read this passage, I see new insights, uh, new powerful beautiful truths, and it's intimidating. I've tried my best this week to capture as many of them as I can, but God, there is so much more to see here for us than a storm and a boat. God, would you help us to see it? Would you give us the eyes to behold your glory in your word this morning, and would you use it to shape us, to make us more and more like Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. He is a God-fearing Christian man. Uh, She is a God-fearing Christian woman. If you're familiar with this phrase, you probably know that it's used in jest, sort of tongue-in-cheek, just as much as it's used sincerely. Some people do refer to faithful believers as God-fearing Christians, and it's a fine thing to say. Certainly we should be. God-fearing Christians, but in our culture, I think we have enough experience with cultural Christianity to know that not everyone who seems to be a God-fearing Christian or presents themselves as a God-fearing Christian is really a God-fearing Christian. Uh, Sometimes the people who want to be seen as God-fearing Christians are the least Christ-like or God-fearing around, and this, I think, is why we use that phrase so often in a tongue-in-cheek sort of way, right? With an eye roll. Like, oh boy, he, yeah, he's definitely one of those God-fearing Christians, right? I, I know a few of those. And at first, it may seem like using the phrase in this way is almost, is, is irreverent. As if it's, it's making light of a very real thing that Christians really should fear the Lord. That's not a joke, and it's not. But the truth is, I think we can lighten up about that. At least a little bit because in Jonah chapter 1 it's almost as if God is describing Jonah as a God-fearing Christian man in this exact same tongue in cheek sort of way as if we should read it and respond oh yeah I bet I bet he is in this story Jonah claims to fear the Lord but virtually every other detail of the story is meant to make it painfully obvious to us that he doesn't. And this is really the point of this strange, whimsical story. Joanna may claim to fear the Lord, and we might even expect him to fear the Lord because he is the only Hebrew in this story, but what we're actually gonna see is that the truth is, if we really fear God, then we will follow him to the people we'd rather avoid. This is our big idea for today. If we really fear God, we will follow him to people we'd rather avoid. Often, the people who claim to be God fearing or present themselves in this way very publicly are, are the ones who like to stay so far away from sinful people in this world in order to prove that they're morally upright and God fearing. But this story makes it abundantly clear, at least according to God, that's not actually how it works. It's not how it works. The ones who really fear him don't run from the sinful people of this world. They run to them. Now, I want to give you the big idea right up front today. I'm just going to tell you, this is what I'm convinced God is trying to say because it's very easy with a fanciful prophetic story like this to really miss the big idea. In all the details of the story. So I want to give it to you. I want to say right up front, believe it or not, I really believe this is what God wants us to see as we look at this story today. And then now, for the rest of our time, I want to show you how this passage is making that point. First, before we get in and start to dissect this, I want to recap the story of chapter 1 just in broad strokes And then we'll kind of circle back and start to dissect it a bit more. But just just real briefly before we do that, last week we read that God sent Jonah to Nineveh, which is a city center in the empire of Assyria, which is Israel's sworn enemy. And he sent him there to prophesy against their evil because they were an incredibly wicked city. Their wickedness and evil even came before the Lord in heaven, it says. But Jonah gets on a ship and runs in the exact opposite direction. Now, we don't know why he's running in the opposite direction yet at this point in chapter 1. The author has not said part of the point of the book is to, to really ask that question. Why is he doing this? And then this week we read that Jonah goes into the hole of the ship, under the deck of the ship, and he falls asleep. Then God sends this terrifying storm. And the pagan mariners, and by the way, a mariner is really just like a, a sailor. A pagan, these pagan sailors can't even see, look, this is not an ordinary storm. Right, there, there is some kind of a spiritual significance to this storm. So, they cry out to their gods, and they wake Jonah up. They say, what are, what are you doing? Right, cry out to your god. And Then they cast lots to try and figure out what's going on. It's kind of like drawing straws, sort of a superstitious way to figure out something, and And the lot falls to Jonah. And so these mariners, these sailors, kind of interrogate Jonah. Well, who are you? What do you do? Uh, What people are you from? What country? And they're trying to make sense of the spiritual significance of this storm. And Jonah says something, and and, and this is very, very important what he says here. I'm convinced it's the, the center point of this passage. And I'm convinced that he probably would have said it something like this. I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, which is a bunch of spiritual nonsense. It's clearly not true that he fears the Lord. We're going to see why that is. Meanwhile, the sailors are actually terrified. (laughs) Jonah uh, recommends that they throw him overboard, but if you notice, they hesitate because I think we're meant to see these are surprisingly nice pagan sailors. Uh, but they eventually do throw him overboard, and as they do, they even preemptively ask God for his mercy and his forgiveness, and then as soon as they do, the storm stops right away, and these pagan sailors of all people cry out to God in worship, right? So this is the story. Now, I want to take a closer look at the three main characters in this story, because I'm convinced that it's in doing this that we're really going to see the true meaning of the story, And so within this story, I want us to kind of zoom in and take a closer look at God, at Jonah, and at these pagan sailors. God, Jonah, and the pagans. I thought it was a cool band name, I thought. God, Jonah, and the pagans. Okay? All right. In part one, I want us to take a closer look at, at God to see what he's doing. And as we do that, I think in this story, what we're going to see is that throughout the story, God is insisting on getting his way With terrifying force. Terrifying force. Right away, as soon as we read about Jonah running to Tarshish, the author says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. This is a direct response to Jonah's foolishness, this entire storm. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, which just means a storm, so that the ship threatened to break up. The storm was so intense, the ship was about to break in half. So this entire story has come about because God is manipulating creation in order to get in Jonah's way as he runs the opposite direction that he sent him. If you've ever seen the movie The Truman Show, uh, Jim Carrey's character is born into this like dome that's actually supposed to feel like an entire world, and He's actually a reality TV guy, and and everyone else is an actor, but he's not an actor. He actually thinks it's real, and then over the course of the movie, he finds out um, that he's actually in a TV show, and his whole life has been a joke, and so he tries to leave this dome, and he gets in a boat, and he goes out, and all of a sudden, the the, uh, producers of this show are architecting the weather in this dome to be a really big storm. That's basically what's happening here. God is architecting this storm, but this is no natural storm. This is not a normal storm. We can tell because right away it gets the attention of these pagan sailors, who we'll get to in a minute, Uh, but when they see this storm, their first response is to cry out to their gods. In other words, even pagan sailors could tell this is some kind of divine act here. This is more than just a bad weather pattern. This was a ferocious storm, and God was insisting on on Jonah going his way with terrifying force. And when the sailors put their heads together and they cast lots to see what's kind of going on here, the lot falls to Jonah. Now, again, casting lots, is, it's sort of this uh, superstitious way to try and appease, you know, fate, basically, and figure something out. It's kind of like drawing straws, like I mentioned, or rolling dice or something like this. But they're basically doing this in hopes that some kind of God would show them what's going on. What's the problem here? But when the lot falls to Jonah, I think we're supposed to see that and presume that God is behind it, right? He is orchestrating these events in order to insist on his way with Jonah. And then later on, as Jonah and the sailors contemplate what to do here, we read that this storm, which God brought about, kept growing more and more tempestuous. As they're kind of sitting on the deck trying to figure this out, well, what should we do here, right? In verse 11, more tempestuous. Let's try rowing harder. More tempestuous, right? In other words, the longer it takes them to figure out that Jonah's the problem here, the more intensely God is squeezing them and intimidating them. He's upping the ante here. Come on, guys. Come on, guys. Come on, guys. Until they can't bear it anymore. They throw him into the sea. So the first thing I want us to see here is that God is not a passive bystander in this story, right? He is sovereignly orchestrating the winds and the sea and even the casting of lots to insist on getting his way. He's insisting with terrifying force that Jonah goes to Nineveh, okay? Next, I want to zoom in on Jonah. When we look at Jonah in this story, what we see is that he claims to fear God but foolishly runs from God, okay? This is the irony we're meant to see here. What we see here in Jonah is an aloof, overconfident man who is completely oblivious to his folly, completely oblivious. And and this is a really important literary technique of the book. It's very important for us to pick up on. Uh, It's almost as if this story is a comedy of errors, it, 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 it's it's like it's one of these black and white Charlie Chaplin films, or like one of the Three Stooges movies, where there's an element of satire to it, right? Jonah's kind of stumbling over himself in this story, making a complete fool of himself in very obvious ways. If there was a soundtrack to this book, it might even sound like that circus music, right? Like, right. That is what's going on here. Jonah gets on the boat, runs the other way to the end of the known world. When he's on the boat, he falls asleep, fast asleep even, while God sends this storm, which he's completely oblivious to. And even the sailors can tell this is some sort of divine intervention. Meanwhile, he's just kind of catching a few winks, you know, in the hole of the ship. And then after the lot falls to Jonah and the sailors basically ask him, who are you? What do you do? Where are you from? Jonah says the most idiotic thing he possibly could say. And again, I think he says it like this. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And this is completely ridiculous, and for for a few reasons. First, as the reader, we already know he's running away from the Lord. The, the, the sailors even mention here, he was very open about this. It says he told us he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. So he's just, he's two tongued. He's, he's inconsistent. He's saying, I fear the Lord. I just happen to be running from him, right? Not to mention, if you are going to flee from the presence of the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, first, good luck with that. Second, a boat a bad option. Right? A boat is a really bad option. And so, just imagine him getting on this boat. Hey, sir, how you doing today? Uh, Where are you headed? Oh, nowhere in particular. I mean, maybe Tarshish, uh, but uh, just running from my God. Oh, great. Yeah, which God is that? The God who made the sea. Okay. Jonah, he's oblivious. Do you see this? He is aloof. His mind is only set on getting away from the people God has sent him to. He's entirely blind to the spiritual dynamics at work all around him. And as the storm starts to grow worse and worse, Jonah even recommends that they throw him overboard. Now, this is really interesting, and I had not seen this before studying Jonah, uh, but we know the story of Jonah very well, right? Right? So we know that the whale, the whale's coming. He's going to get swallowed up by the whale. At this point in the story, Jonah does not know about the whale. And so if you are an ancient Hebrew person on a pagan sailboat in the middle of the ocean and you say, yeah, go ahead and throw me over, what are you expecting would happen? You're expecting to die. This is tantamount to a suicide attempt. We're meant to read this and think that Jonah would rather die at sea than go to Nineveh. Which he actually says, by the way, to God twice in chapter 4. He says, take my life. Better for me to die. And by the way, that's after he goes to Nineveh and after the entire city repents. That's a pretty important detail we'll get to in a few weeks. All of this is supposed to stand in stark contrast to what Jonah has said in verse 9. I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. I just happen to hate the people he's redeeming. We're supposed to read verse 9 and then see Jonah's foolishness and think, I don't think verse 9 is true. (laughs) Right? That whole bit about fearing God, that seems like a bunch of spiritual-sounding nonsense. And there is one other very interesting detail in this story in particular that really drives this point home, our big idea today. And that is part three when we look at the pagans in this story. And what's interesting about the pagans when you look at this story is that they actually do fear God. And they end up worshiping him. So you may have noticed, again, Jonah is the only Hebrew in this entire book. And he is consistently the only fool in this entire book. Now, don't let that point be lost on you. That is an important detail. Because all the while, I think we're meant to piece together Jonah's motivation here. Why is he running? It doesn't seem clear until we get to chapter 4. But we do get a few hints along the way. And I think this is one of the hints. Jonah is aloof. He is overconfident because he is a Hebrew. Right, he's thinking, oh, I have the right ethnic and religious affiliation, and he's pretty happy with himself about that. Meanwhile, he's the fool, and everyone else, all these wicked pagans in the story are surprisingly wise and God-fearing people. At, the, at every turn in the story, the sailors are actually afraid of God which is supposed to highlight just how disingenuous Jonah's claim is when he said that he fears the Lord. While this God he fears is trying to get his attention with a horrific storm, Jonah's asleep. Meanwhile, in verse 5, the mariners, it says, were afraid. They cry out to uh, their gods. Then they wake Jonah up and they encourage him, like, what do you mean, you sleeper? And I love that, like, like what are you doing? Get up, call out to your God. And then listen to this Says perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we might not perish. Did you notice that? Listen to the tone, the emotional tone in that. Perhaps this God will give a thought to us and we may not perish. You can hear the respect and the reverence in these pagans' words. They have a fear for this God, even though they don't know him. They're basically saying, look, look, we don't deserve to be saved here. That's not what we're saying. But look, Jonah, if you just call out to your God, I mean, maybe he'll save us. Maybe. As soon as Jonah tells them his identity, that he's a Hebrew, and his God is the maker of the sea and the dry land, these pagans do not just roll their eyes and laugh at him. They take him very seriously. They ask, what have you done? It says that they were exceedingly afraid. This last part is the best. Before they throw Jonah overboard, they hesitate. Did you notice this? They hesitate. Jonah has already made it clear, look, the only way you're going to end this storm is by throwing me overboard. But look at verse 13. It says, nevertheless... The men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. In other words, they didn't want to kill Jonah. Do you see this? So, Jonah is willing to die rather than to extend mercy to wicked pagans. Meanwhile, these pagans are trying to save his life, even though they easily could have died because of him. Not to mention... As they do throw him into the sea, they even cry out to Jonah's God. They say, oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, oh, Lord, have done as it pleased you. In other words, look, God, this is clearly your world. This man is clearly part of your people. Clearly, you could punish us for our sin. But listen, we're not trying to murder him. That's not what we're doing here. We're just trying to survive. It says, they feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. While Jonah is running away from a wicked pagan city because he thinks he is above those evil sinners, these wicked pagans, uh, every one of them he counters along the way, actually end up worshiping God. The only person in this story who does not fear the Lord is Jonah. And that is the entire point of this story. Because in this story, God is trying to show us again that if we really fear him, then we will follow him to the people we'd rather avoid. We won't run from all the wicked sinners in this world claiming that we fear God we will run to those wicked sinners of the world in hopes that someday they might fear God because we were so gracious as to be blessed by him in Christ. It doesn't matter if we're tempted to hate them for any number of other reasons. It doesn't matter if they even hate us. God is doing something here. If we fear him, we will be sensitive to it. We won't be sleeping in the boat. We will be sensitive to that. This is what we see, I'm convinced, as we look at our passage And so next, what I want to do now is sort of zoom out a little bit, and I want to consider what does this mean for us today? How do we apply this to life as Christians in 2021? I have three takeaways for us, and the first one is this. It's that God sends us to people we'd rather avoid. He does. This is a thing that God does. It's very, very hard to miss this in the book of Jonah. It's kind of the point very, very easy to miss this in real life. As I've processed Jonah with a few other church members in the past few weeks, the questions came up, well, why didn't God just send a different prophet to Nineveh? Why why did he have to go through all this if Jonah was so hard-hearted? And I think the answer to that is because one of the main points of this book is that God does send us to our worst enemies. He absolutely does. He knows how hard and unintuitive that will be. And the point of this is not, hey, Nineveh's not really so bad. No, Nineveh really was a wicked city. There's plenty of biblical evidence for that. But God expects us to get over our earthly gripes and go reach the people we would otherwise hate. And so do you have a category for this in your Christian life? Which people would you rather avoid? And if you're tempted to say, no one, Danny, no one, I, just, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. Let me ask this. When you get a sense that a certain group of people is marked by or prone to a certain kind of sin, or maybe that they're even marked by celebrating a certain kind of sin, uh, do you throw up the smoke screen of your fear of God while you run the other way and avoid them? Or do you trust in the power and mercy of God? And go pursue them. You've probably noticed uh, we are a predominantly white, upper middle class, theologically conservative church. Which means we want to conserve the truth. Of God's word, which was revealed in the past, long before us. We see something precious and beautiful there that needs to be conserved rather than the alternative of progressive, which is to move beyond that to some newer and better future in the past, beyond what God has said in the past. Okay. That said, as a predominantly white, theologically conservative church, when someone suggests that racism is a problem that we need to take seriously, Or that ethnic and racial diversity is a glorious byproduct of the gospel, which it is, do we tense up and accuse that friend of importing the world's agenda into the church as if God is not trying to gather a spiritually redeemed people from among every tribe and nation and tongue as if that doesn't really matter? When someone even just acknowledges the existence of a person with same-sex attraction without immediately condemning that person as if, for instance, they really care about them as a a friend. Do we cringe and question that friend's spiritual maturity? Do we assume they must be compromising? They clearly don't submit to the authority of Scripture when it speaks to gender and sexuality and marriage. Maybe Certainly that is a problem. We, we spoke about that in great detail in, in our first John series. But could it also be that you don't submit to the authority of Scripture when it says this, that God does send us to people we'd rather avoid? Could it be that you're not really avoiding these groups because you fear the Lord? Could it be that you're not nearly as concerned about the sin tendencies as you're pretending to be? Uh, Could it be that you think they are so wicked they would never repent and actually worship God? Because that's what most ancient Hebrews would have thought about a group of pagan sailors. Could it be that deep down in our hearts we hate them so much that we don't mind the idea of them being judged by God? Could it be? Church, we cannot fool ourselves into thinking that we fear God because we isolate ourselves from sinful people. It could very well be that we are not running from this world or its sin. It could be that we are running from our God because he has sent us to these very people. He does intend to offer them mercy through us. This is real. In church, the gospel needs to actually transform the way we think and live in this world, the way we interact with and, and think of every people group, including any group that we would just rather avoid. In Christ, all the power struggles of this world have been obliterated. A new spiritual people is being gathered from among every tribe, nation, and tongue, and this spiritual family is made up of all kinds of people who otherwise would have hated one another and avoided one another at all costs. That is a New Testament priority. That is a byproduct of the gospel, and we see a foretaste of it here, loud and clear in the Old Testament, in the book of Jonah even, when God sends his prophet from his chosen nation to extend mercy to the very nation that will wipe them off the map. This is a thing. And we don't just get to avoid our enemies or or define them out of our worldview in our daily lives because their sin is somehow threatening to us and we just rather wouldn't go there, if we really fear the Lord, we will go there. We will. Because it's exactly where God has sent us. And because we can be sure that the power of his mercy is far greater than the power of their sin. And church, if we don't go, the problem is not that we lack courage. That's not the problem. The problem is not that we lack compassion, that's not the problem. If we don't go, the problem is that we lack the fear of God. So what we see first is that God does send us to people we'd rather avoid. And next what we see is that if we run, we don't really fear him. If we run, we don't really fear him. If you asked Jonah why he hated the Ninevites so badly, he probably would have said, oh, it's because they're so wicked. Have you heard of these guys? I'm a Hebrew. right? I can't be rubbing shoulders with people like that. right? He would have hidden behind the smoke screen of his fear of God to justify running from Nineveh while the God he claimed to fear was moving heaven and earth to get him to Nineveh. The problem here is that Jonah hated his enemies far more than he feared his God. He hated his enemies more than he feared his God church, and and woe to us if we do too. If we want to actually know who fears the Lord, here is the telltale sign. Here is the telltale sign. Do they associate with people who don't? Or would they rather be found dead at the bottom of the sea? This is how we know. If we hate our enemies so much that we'd rather die than be sent anywhere near them, our biggest problem is not that we lack compassion. Again, I'm sure we do. Our biggest problem is not that we idolize comfort or that we think too highly of ourselves, although I'm sure that's probably the case as well. Our biggest problem is that we hate our enemies more than we fear our God. Because if we really feared God... We would get over our self-righteous hatred of others. We would be honest about our sin. We would recognize that we are more like these people than we are unlike these people. And we would get with God's program as he lavishes his mercy on wicked sinners like us. If we really fear the Lord, then running from the world he's trying to redeem would terrify the thought of it would make us quiver in fear. We would tremble at the thought of deciding for God who deserves his mercy. So please join me in praying that God would bring people into our lives who are wrestling with their sexual identity, for instance. And if he does, Please join me in not running the other way, but in pointing them to the glorious truth of the gospel of grace, which is so infinitely greater and more powerful than this world's empty claims to just be yourself and do every single thing that you think sounds and feels good for you and don't let anyone tell you otherwise because, trust me, there's nothing ever wrong with you ever. That message will prove hollow, for anyone who tries to pursue it. Will we be there when it does to point them to the mercy and grace of God or will we be on a ship headed the other way? Please join me in praying that God would make us a more ethnic and racially diverse congregation for the sake of his glory to display the beautiful power of his gospel. And if he does, please join me in celebrating that Rather than being suspicious of it. Rather than wondering, have we we gone liberal? Is this pastor one of those social justice warriors? Is that why this is happening? Slow down. Look at Jonah chapter 1. This is not my idea. This is God's idea. We have to deal with that. And will there be dangers along the way? Could there be ways to get it wrong or really swing and miss? Sure, sure. But if we really fear the Lord, then we won't run from these topics or these people. We will run to them. Precisely because we have a million reasons not to. Chief among them being our own comfort. (laughs) Because this is not easy. Church, if we fear the Lord enough to follow him where he's leading, if we fear the Lord enough to follow him to some of the hardest places, to reach the people that seem the least likely to repent and worship him, I I am convinced by this book, I am convinced he will honor that. He will honor it. And if we don't fear him enough to go there, then before long, I, I think God's trying to tell us here, we will find We can run, but we can't hide. We can run, but we can't hide. If we think we can ignore certain groups in order to keep our lives more safe and comfortable, God will just keep turning up the volume on that storm. He will eventually gobble us up in the belly of a whale. He will bring us low, deep down to the depths of darkness until we finally fear him enough to listen to him. And to go share his mercy with our enemies. Because this kind of compassion for his world is not optional. This is his plan to redeem the world. Now, I just want to confess, over this past year, God has brought me low in this way. Particularly as it relates to COVID-19 and everything else. (laughs) That's connected to that. When I moved our family here to a new city to plant a church with 10 friends and then a year later, the government shut everything down, the media climate started to heat up, the medical experts were more cautious than I would have liked them to be, the conversation around race grew more and more contentious and challenging, the election got more and more explosive, my blood started to boil I could just feel the frustration mounting. What a stupid world. I'm sure you've been there this year. But my wife had to endure many long, tense conversations with me as I just vented about all the ways this world is lost and clearly misguided and how hard that makes life for me. And look, it really did. To be honest, it was a very hard year in a lot of ways, and our world is lost. We've seen this year in, in a lot of ways, but there have been plenty of days when I was on a ship to Tarshish. Plenty. i written this world off. wanted nothing to do with it. I was glad I had an excuse to stay home for weeks on end. You could probably relate to that too. And because I failed to look to the Lord and to rely on him to trust him, to go where he was sending and ra- instead of running from him bitter, I'm convinced he brought me low. Some of you have walked with me through that. Uh, some of you have probably just noticed it. Uh, but in many ways, God has and is using this book to sort of spit me back onto the shore, if you will. He is using Jonah to lovingly ask me the question that he will ask Jonah in chapter 4. Danny, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Church, we can run from the fact that God has called us into a sinful world all we want. But if we just take this book seriously, it's not hard to see. We can run, but we can't hide. There are very pious sounding spiritual reasons to avoid our enemies and to hate this world. And God wants nothing to do with any of them. Jonah is tailor made to show us beyond a shadow of a doubt. This God is eager to redeem our enemies and he wants to use us to do it. The perfectly holy and righteous God who came down from heaven to share meals with tax collectors and lepers does not want us to avoid sinful people. Christ even prayed in John 17, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He says, as you sent me into the world so I have sent them into the world. If we resist this call, if we grow bitter, if we hit eject on the world, if we run the other way, he will send that storm. He will send that whale from the depths of the sea to swallow us up. As if to say, how about now? How about now? Do you fear me yet? Can we try this over again? Or would you rather die here in the depths of the sea than share my mercy with your enemies? Because don't forget, I had mercy on you when you were my enemy. Did I not? Church, the choice is ours. But like Jonah, we cannot pretend to fear God while we run from him. It is not an option, he's willing to afford us here. We will either fear him and go to Nineveh, or we will die in the bowels of a fish. We get to pick. We get to pick. But he will show us the foolishness of our hypocrisy and the shocking extent of his mercy. He will. Church, I don't know where the world's headed. In, in a lot of ways, doesn't look great. might be kind of terrifying. I think probably we shouldn't be all that surprised about this. But whatever lies ahead, we cannot just run the other way, pretending we fear the Lord. If we really fear him, we will follow him to Nineveh to share his mercy with our enemies. Let's pray. Father God, we are looking now to you, cut, I hope, to the heart, not even by a single word that I've said, but simply by the thrust and the clear meaning of this story. Do a work in us, God. Use your word to refine us, to shape us, to mold us that we would be, yes, both true to your word, committed to your righteousness, even in a world that is not and yet called to that world. God, help us to see Jonah in ourselves. Help us to read this book as if we are convinced you knew what you were doing when you inspired it. As if we know that you clearly think we have to hear something here, God. Use this in us. Make us more like Christ. Glorify yourself as we give mercy, your mercy, to our enemies, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.